my wife and I spent three years here in Florida, about six blocks from Florida Hospital while I was taking my residency. During that time, I owned the most amazing car I've had in my life. We called it the Blue Goose. That's because we painted it blue. The reason that we painted it was because it needed to be painted fairly desperately. It had some dings and dents. It had some rust spots. But the thing that I really enjoyed was that I had a parking card to the Florida Hospital Physician's Lot. And I had this recurrent dream of parking between a BMW and a Porsche <laughs> with my sun visor that read, lay not up your treasures on earth where wrath and must as corrupt. <laughs> Actually, it was the best financial car I've ever owned as well. I bought it for $575, changed a battery and a brake cable and sold it 10 years later for $400. <clears throat> the other interesting memory I had while I was here was Nick Walters, who was one of the other residents in the program, gave me a call over at his house. We were neighbors. He said, Mark, I got to have you come see this thing. I, <clears throat> I was just down at a computer fair today, and they've got this really new, neat thing out. We're not going to have to do DOS anymore and all those backslash. Um, I paid $95 for this because it's this new promotion for Windows 95. <laughs> Lots of happy memories of our time here in Florida. The Bible exhorts us to pray for one another. Chester has prayed for me, and I'm going to entrust myself and my words to that prayer and to the God who which it ascended. The theme of this conference has been follow the leader. What does it mean to follow Jesus in your medical or dental practice? And this evening, I would like to take a low, closer look at this theme from a spiritual perspective. The closest phrase I could find to that in the Bible is found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. If you have your Bibles, please turn to that passage. I'm going to be, and I'll start at the beginning of that chapter. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are those who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves pure. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wheresoever he goeth. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. Surrounded by chapters of war and carnage, mayhem and bloodshed on every side, 
with the smell of sulfur in our nose and visions that would make us close our eyes. How is it that we come upon this respite, this peaceful hollow, this tranquil scene? How could that experience be ours? How can their peaceful faces, their mature experiences, and their graceful elevation be ours? The experience delineated here of this group of people cannot be studied closely enough. The next section is the three angels' message, the final gospel invitation to the world. With the most chilling warning found in Scripture, the double-sickle harvest of the righteous and the unrighteous, then the end of the age, the close of history, the finale. When I was in school, there were times a teacher would say, this is important. There were times when a teacher would say, you should underline this. And some teachers were more blatant and would say, this is going to be on the test. I'd like to speak plain with you, this is going to be on the test. This passage should be studied word by word and phrase by phrase until its message saturates our minds and hearts. And tonight, I would like to consider only one phrase, 14b. They followed the Lamb wheresoever he goeth. Now, there is a well-known phrase in regards to surgeons sometimes applied. He went straight for the jugular. One of its meanings is to get straight to this point. Well, this evening, I don't want to go straight to the point. I would like to take a slow route. I desire to make several stops along the way. It's Friday night. We don't have any particular rush to be some other place. So I would like to form a picture and work on the frame, slowly moving to the center of the portrait. They followed the lamb wherever he goeth. What did that mean to first century Christians? Did these words have a deeper meaning? a more searing reality than we from our vantage as comfortable 21st century Americans can understand. I'd like to begin with a bit of history followed by a scenario question for us to be located in relation to their lives. We begin our story in Rome, the center of the then old world, the seat of government which dictated the laws which held like glue the various sections and parts of the vast empire, be it locally in Rome or in the far-flung areas from which John writes the Revelation. Rome was founded as Isaiah was beginning his prophetic ministry, destined to become one of the greatest histories of greatest cities of civilization. This city was well on its way by the mid-first century. The Caesars had ruled for decades. The city boasted a size of about 500 square miles and had a million inhabitants, a melting pot of peoples and religions. The mixed population of Rome attracted Jews, who numbered approximately 50,000 by the middle of the first century. There were at least 13 well-known synagogues at this time in Rome. In Acts, we read that visitors from Rome were present at the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, when Peter gave his sermon. 
Whether it was these Christians that ba brought back the gospel message to Rome, we don't know. But very early on, the Christian message did come to Rome. The historian Suetonius writes that Emperor Claudius expelled the Christians and the Jews in 49 AD because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of one Crestus, probably a misspelling of Christ, resulting in the expulsion of Jews and Jewish Christians, and among them Priscilla and Aquila, who we read of in Acts. Five years later, in 54 AD, Nero invites the Jews to come back, and some 50,000 do. And with them returned the Jewish Christians. And the church grew stronger. It is thought that Peter visited Rome in the mid-50s. In 58 AD, Paul writes his letter to the Romans, and he comes to visit himself in 61. The church swells. The situation is so favorable for Jews and Christians that Paul could write in Romans 13, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. With additional phrases, he that resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, for that power is the minister of God. Who could have known how things suddenly would change for those Christians? Josephus reports that a certain Papae, a Jewish proselyte, became the wife of Nero at this time and made a way for Jewish concerns to go directly to Nero. More than one historian has wondered if her presence and the access she provided didn't have something to do with the fate of Christians in AD 64. While rumor had it that Nero wanted at least part of Rome burned to rebuild it as the city that he wanted, when this was whispered in the streets, Nero needed a scapegoat quickly, which he found readily in this little-known suspicious group called Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus thus writes, as a consequence, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius and at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of this superstition and evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. In accordance, an arrest was made first of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt 
to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. In the subsequent events, Peter and Paul are both taken prisoners and martyred, along with thousands of other Christians during this intense persecution under Nero. After a hiatus, a sustained persecution under Domitian took place for the next 15 years. This was a continuation of what Nero had done, and it is now in this context that we find John writing as the beast mauls his fellow Christians in Asia Minor and in other places of the world. So what does this Rome of 2,000 years ago have to do with us tonight? Perhaps more than you may consider at first. Let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Let's just say that suddenly a number of armed guards came into this room. They barred all exit. You find yourself going numb with shock and disbelief. A nameless terror fills your stomach as you begin to realize this is not a joke. Their leader takes the stage and says, we will make an example of all of you to the world. Through those doors, we will take you two at a time and kill you. And if there are no volunteers, we'll just kill you like rabbits here. Assuming escape or flight is impossible, who of you would walk to the front of the line? Who of you here now would make your way to the foreground in the hope that delay would provide extra time so rescue could come to others. There are certain death in moments and you have only moments to decide. Will you go? Some of you are thinking that's crazy, that's a totally hypothetical situation. With slight variation, let me bring some things to your remembrance. Similar barbarities took place under the Nazi regime and under the genocideers of Rwanda. Given our current state of the world and alter a few details, it's not that difficult to imagine. Think Russian theater. Think Nairobi Mall. Changing a few details, the situation is what the early Christians face. But back to our question, who of you will go? Some of you have young, beautiful children. Would you be willing to step to the front of the line? Some of you here are falling in love or have recently married. Would you be willing to cut that off? Some of you are older and have a spouse who needs your care. Would you step up to the front of the line? And some of you have teenagers at a critical period in their life who need you. Would you be willing to exit their life now? May I suggest that there are two characteristics that would be found in those who would be willing to step to the front of the line. In the remainder of my time, I would like to develop these characteristics that I believe were found in those early Christians and that I believe will be found in those awaiting Christ's second coming. First, these ones know Christ, Messiah, not only as the righteousness of God, but as their very own righteousness. They are found 100% in him, and they not trust one iota to themselves, not one speck. 
seeing by faith in themselves only the stains of weakness, the less than virtuous motives for far too many actions in their life, and passions unworthy of the name Christian. In a word, they see themselves as the Bible has described them, sinners, the lost race of Adam, the prodigal sons and daughters. They in utter need and helplessness have fled to the cross, to the Savior and are totally hid in Christ. They, like Paul, have only one glory and one great fixation, which is away from themselves and directed wholly to Messiah. Secondly, they have the law of God written on their hearts. This law was the great law before the earth came to be. The law of the throne of God's government and the highest principle of his administration found strewn throughout both the first and second testament its most brilliant manifestation, its most sublime form, its express image of loveliness was seen in the face, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. It is the principle of self-sacrificing, self-renouncing love. This principle finds its origin, its source, and its fountainhead in the heart of God alone. Armed with these two principles, known, secure, and unbending, Christ my righteousness and the precept of self-sacrificing love, you could walk straight to the head of the line with human trembling and with divine confidence. This total dependence on God alone, this law of self-renouncing love, whether found in its single form or its multiplied two or ten form, is what Revelation trademarks as the faith of Jesus and the commandments of God. It is interesting to note that exorbitant sums of money young people are willing to pay for brand name clothing. Those certain brands are the trademarks of great clothing companies of America. But this combo characteristic trademark is the logo of Revelation, yea, of the New Testament and the Bible. It is the brand name worn by those who follows the Lamb wherever he goeth. Now, in order for this experience to be ours, there is something we cannot have and something we must have. This can't have and must have will be our focus. And there are many examples in life of this dual parting of the ways. When you go to medical school, you cannot have a normal life and pass medical school well. It's one or it's the other. The common proverb for this is that you can't have your cake and eat it too. There is something you cannot have and follow the lamb wheresoever he goeth. If that something is in your mind and in your heart, it will not be hard but impossible to follow this lamb wherever he goeth. John found this problem in incipient form in one of his churches, but prophetically found it flourishing at the end. The cannot found is found in Revelation 3, starting with verse 14. Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and need nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you can become rich, white raiment, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness not be seen. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne, as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What does this passage have to do with the Lamb? Everything. And that became very personally experienced by me several weeks ago. I had finished my shift at the wound center and was headed back through my office to the hospital when my pager went off and it was the wound care center, which I just left, and it said, veggie pizza, come. <laughs> the wonderful staff there treat me very well. They wanted to share with me, and because of my unique diet and other beliefs and practices as a Christian, as an Adventist, they see me as a bit of a curiosity. It has been suggested in jest that I dance around maypoles and sacrifice goats. So whenever I am invited somewhere as far as possible, I do all I can to cross bridges, to shit, sit, sit with them and laugh, and to enjoy fellowship. I returned and had a couple pieces of pizza. Whether it was that or not, by that evening I was not feeling very well. <laughs> and since we are doctors and dentists and health professionals, I will take the liberty of being a little less delicate than would be proper for a polite company. When I suffer a gastrointestinal affliction, I often have tenesmus, that urge to defecate without the ability. A physical version of Paul's, to will is with me, but not to do. <laughs> it's like my body wants the toxin out, but the contamination wants to come out as slowly as possible in order to inflict maximum discomfort in the process of leaving. I suffered that evening with greater than usual intensity, but that is my usual GI course, and I thought it was a passing thing. This was Thursday night. That weekend, we were scheduled to go to a Christian camp for a spiritual medical retreat. I felt that this GI bug wouldn't stop me, and after eating small meals carefully all weekend, I was ready for a real meal on arriving home. I asked my wife to make my favorite food, lentils and cornbread, and I ate with gusto. That Sunday night, I awoke with a spasm of abdominal agony that I can scarcely recount to you. I felt as though an elephant were shifting all his weight onto my viscera, and it would herniate in one massive exodus through my rear. 
cramp after recurrent cramp came to me with such intensity and such short order that at times I thought I was losing my mind. I laid in bed in vain searching for sleep until a crescendo buildup of pressure went higher and higher till I could stand it no more. Bending forward at the waist, trembling, I shuffled to the restroom. Sitting on the commode, I would try to relax but found it impossible. Doubled up in pain, I would literally cry out in agony for deliverance when explosive compressed discharge would physically jolt me. The result of this effort was typically the size of a raisin. <laughs> With incomplete relief of my anguish, I would head to the sink to wash my hands, but before I was finished washing, would have to return to the scene of my so recently visited distress. Now momentarily, let's shelve this discussion and go back to the five descriptive words of Revelation. Here is the what we cannot have, spiritually rich, having all we want and needing nothing. Rather, the first word we are to have is wretched. Wretched. While at the Bible camp I had mentioned that I went to for the weekend I was listening to the sermon, something the speaker said caused me to look up Revelation 3. So while they were preaching, I looked up Revelation 3. And as I was reading this passage, I said to myself, you know, I don't understand this wretchedness at all. This is something I've never experienced. <laughs> From my lips to God's ear, Never have I experienced such wretchedness in all my life. Never has a biblical passage presented itself so alive to me with meaning. Never had the words, O oh, wretched man that I am, come to me with such vividness. Miserable. Is there any other words I could use to describe what it was like to have the removal of my intestines, the twisting of my viscera like a wet summer towel being squeezed dry? a misery that caused me to hold a bathroom counter as though I were on the edge of a cliff. God answered my prayer in a way that I could have never imagined. Blind. All right, you doctors, learned and true. What was my diagnosis? <laughs> That was incorrect. <laughs> I was surely blind to my own diagnosis. Not until two days later and after two correct, incorrect diagnosis, coupled with the near rupture of my rectum by three large volume enemas, did the colonoscopy reveal the correct diagnosis. Near total obstruction due to stricturing ruptured sigmoid diverticulitis. And this is the really rich part. That Saturday night of the retreat after the meeting, I relaxed with a few physician friends, laughing about my colonic woes. We cracked jokes about the GI tract and mine in particular. Four physicians postulating and joking, none of us realizing the gravity of my situation. Blind guides worthless physicians. 
all of us. For when you are blind, you just can't see what needs to be seen. Poor and naked. Poor means not having what you need to care for yourself. And naked means not being able to cover yourself. These five words together give a composite picture of an abject and deplorable state. Mine was a physical state. Revelation here describes a spiritual state. God often uses the physical to open our minds to the spiritual, which is why pain, as painful as it is, is such a useful tool to God in the context of sin and salvation. What we see and feel unillumined by God's spirit is not what we are. I was surprised, yea, shocked, to find that I had diverticulitis. No stricturing diverticulitis. No ruptured, stricturing, obstructed diverticulitis. A week before that, I had felt fine. There was no possibility this was me. There was no possibility this was my condition. Until I lay in a thin robe with an ivy in my arm, staring at the ceiling on the wing of the hospital where I am the attending physician, <laughs> Mr. Dr. Surgeon, now reduced to this. While you cannot deny the wretchedness and misery of physical illness, you can certainly deny the wretchedness and misery of spiritual illness because its perfectly crafted deception leaves you feeling fine. This makes this condition subtle yet invariably fatal. Carbon monoxide poisoning comes to one as an odorless gas that puts you to sleep eternally. You don't feel bad. You don't have pain. You don't smell anything. And then you are gone. You may not feel wretched tonight, but you may want to ask the perfect diagnostician if that feeling is right. Sometimes fatal things are not felt or sensed. This condition will never allow you to walk to the front of the line and lay down your life for your friends. For though it is often hid from our conscious minds, the self in moments of eternal peril will always shield itself. Know this man, this woman of Revelation 3 will head for self-preservation every time and never move to the head of the line of self-sacrifice. So why this excursus from our subject on the Lamb? Because without this understanding of our fundamental condition, an accurate diagnosis not heard as the words from doctor's lips, but is experienced as the reality of a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you begin to appreciate the Lamb's solution? This subtle pride, this sense of okayness, of accomplishment, this rich, got the goods, need nothing. This inner secret subconscious thought is as fatal to our souls as this illness almost was to my body. And though this was not the case with the majority of the generation who felt the heat of persecution, John, by prophetic insight, saw it as the devastating malady of the final generation. We have heard sermons about so many things we ought to think, we ought to do, we ought to pursue. 
but unless we understand the wretchedness of this type of richness and the blessing of this type of misery, we cannot follow this lamb wherever he goes. We want to finish the work, but until this work is done in us, there will be no finishing of the work. Jesus did indeed give his disciples something to do to teach about his kingdom, but the essential lesson he had to teach them and that they had to learn is that nothing they did for the kingdom mattered unless self was dead and the remains were hid in Christ. This was to be the unalterable can't and must of Messiah's kingdom. My favorite illustration of this principle that was the sum and substance of Jesus' teaching, the only principle that can prepare us for that ultimate test, was Peter's walk on the water. Asking to come to Christ, Jesus bids him come. I bless Peter for this lesson, but personally, I think he was crazy. Why would you leave a firm, secure wooden structure in the middle of the night on black, choppy water to walk out? He had no idea if it was 40 or 80 feet deep, but it didn't matter because no matter how deep it was, he was not going to touch bottom in case of emergency. He was either mad or full of faith. He walks, and when he realizes what he's doing, he cannot help himself, but turns to his fellows. Boys, are you seeing me now? Do you see the I am rich coming through in this story? And into the watery grave, he begins to slip. I am convinced that Peter could have died that night. Back in the boat, he buries his head in Christ. Sorrow and grief fill him. He realizes he is miserable, wretched, and was close to death. His head, his body is buried in a savior. No rich, no need of nothing here, but poor and in need of all things. All we see is his backside and precious little of that. He clings, he hangs, he cries. Here is a picture of one in whom self is deflated like a ruptured balloon and the remains hidden and buried, enclosed in a savior. That is until God gave Peter his next revealing test. For you see this emptying of the self-love principle never happens all at once. It's a little by little experience as we can bear the revelation of our true deformity in light of the Lamb's glory. But Peter, experience after experience, learned of that Messiah until he too, with many of his brothers and sisters, could die outside of Rome, crucified, upside down, full of Messiah and empty of self, a richer man than Nero would ever be. The spirit of the disciples and the spirit of Israel of old was to do something anything in the flesh. And whether it is the quiet comfortableness of the rich need of nothing group or the busyness that we have to do something group, any doing in the flesh only strengthens the flesh the more and secures our eternal loss. And this is where the lamb story takes front and center. Here is the great must. There is nothing you can do to secure favor with God except by the Lamb.
There is nothing that you can bring to the table to atone for your iniquity except through the Lamb. There is no rite or activity you can perform that will make you acceptable to God except through the Lamb. And there is no sacrifice of the flesh adequate to procure your satisfaction except the Lamb's. Can you hear the Spirit, Adventists? My Catholic brethren, is it as clear? No activity or experience, my Pentecostal friends, and on and on to each and every denomination and religion. No other way, no other method, no other gospel. This following of the Lamb does not mean getting up and walking after him and doing something, not in its first order anyway. That is our natural tendency. That is our natural thought. No, this following of the Lamb is first and foremost with the eye. No walking about, no following now. No, you sit and watch as this is a Lamb's alone performance. See him in the garden as this Lamb undergoes the beginning of his shaving process. The total giving up of his will in utter and complete submission to the Father. See him cling to the ground there in Gethsemane, the removal as the shearing process proceeds, the removal of that white wool, that white protective coating, as those curls of complete intimate fellowship with his father fall to the ground. As the lamb now becomes coated and covered, with handful after handful of that vile paste called your sin and mine, caked, thick, double-layered, running over until it equals the weight of the world in rebellion, iniquity, sin, and transgression. Follow the lamb as he is taken by thieves and ruffians, this pure, tender, spotless son of God, tied, manhandled, pushed and pulled. See him falsely accused, lied against, railed upon, silent before his shearers. Watch in disbelief as Messiah is prepared for death, stripped, mocked, bruised, beaten, crushed by hardened Roman soldiers just doing their job. Watch as the force of his scourging splatters blood across the praetorium, a fitting symbol of one whose blood will cover the world. Follow the lamb as he passes through the sheep gate, its name bearing mute and awful testimony to its centuries enduring purpose. If there ever was a time to focus your vision, a time to bend your ears, to still your hands and your feet, it is now. Behold, as the Lamb of God stumbles at the weight of the cross, God's cup of mine, yours and humanity's sins, it seemingly cannot be borne. No angel in heaven breathes. Like synchronized swimmers, the Father's image reflects the son's reality completely. And if you have not the interest or endurance to watch this, an angel will immediately take your place. 
For to him, this is the most stupendous thing he has seen happen since his creation. Jesus rises and with superhuman force, he sets his face, what is left of it. His body, its mangled and shredded remains to the height of Golgotha, the antechamber of death, the skull, the entrance to the never returning underworld. But nothing will stop this divine purpose. Nothing will stop this march of self-renouncing, self-sacrificing love. This is the no thing, the nothing of Romans chapter 8. Follow the lamb if your eyes are able as his, this suffering servant of Isaiah voluntarily lays down on that especially splintered cross. As you close your eyes, there is no rest for you, for what you ears hear, as though echoing down a canyon, is the meeting of wood and metal, the echo of timber and nail, with human flesh as the mediator, crushed and opened for you. That cry of pain will ring in ears until ears shall hear no more. This sound takes the last of Mary's ebbing strength and she faints into John's arm who bears her away for time. You know the sayings of the cross. You know the words. You know the actions and interactions. A darkness now surrounds the cross through which no man, no woman, no angel can look. Despite the darkness, you follow the lamb now by sound. Two sounds are heard in the darkness. One is of blood dripping out in almost silent, measured chorus. It is more sign language than sound, drip by drip, as it is poured out on the ground for the life of the world. The other sound you hear is grating, as with supernatural effort, the weight of Jesus is placed on his laterally fastened ankles. He puts all the weight of his body on that piercing nail to push his welted and shredded back against the splintered roughened cross. He catches his breath, being unable to breathe in the sagging position, and as his strength gives way, descends into the suffocation of death again. This thin space between back and beam, between sacrificial lamb and altar of burnt offering grating, is designated the loom of heaven. Here, as Jesus pushes himself up and lowers himself down, the loom of heaven at infinite painful cost is creating that robe of righteousness without which no man or no woman shall stand in God's presence. Up and down he goes, the weaver's shuttle, thread by thread, the garment is made, a tapestry beautiful, rich, majestic, divine, and costly beyond description. Finally, we hear, it is finished. He bows his head, his last breath breathed. His life is gone. We are silenced and awed. The lamb's solo performance 
has been full, entire, sweeping, flawless, spotless, total and complete, the lamb for sinners slain. Do you have a new insight into how Paul could say, before your eyes, Jesus was openly portrayed as crucified? Can you understand why Paul would say to the Galatians that severed foreskins really don't add anything and it's not an integral part of the script? To which scene of Calvary would you add it? And what would it do for you that was not done on the cross? Christians owe a great debt to Jews who for centuries have kept alive the sacrificial system for this moment of moments. And from the Muslims, we can learn much about submission that we see par excellence in Jesus. But perhaps there is something that neither group has yet seen in the cross. And what have you seen in the cross? Is there anything you'd like to add to it? Or is it enough? Before there is any doing on your part, any following of the lamb, there must be a seeing of who the lamb is, of what he has done. All following is on this side of the cross in its shadow, a shadow giving more life and warmth than the cloud in the Old Testament ever could. There is so much more to revelation, time prophecies, symbols, and acted scenes that cry for explanation in light of what is happening in the world today. But each of those lectures must be given in the Lamb's dialect. And each of those chapters must be written with the ink drawn from Emmanuel's veins. If anyone studying and expounding Revelation does not see this great sacrifice as the central theme, the glory, the focus of Revelation, there is nothing in this book of any real importance or lasting value. Because 1 Corinthians tell us that prophecy will cease, but that this love will remain forever. Amen. This cross is the reason that those early Christians could, would, and did follow the Lamb wherever he went. This cross is the basis for giving one's life in a moment's notice. This cross is the cure for the wretched condition of Revelation 3. This crossed Lamb is what John wanted us to see and to follow wherever he goeth. The perfect doctor's office is for not without the lamb. Following the leader without following the lamb is fruitless. For each of us, the cross of Christ comes as the answer to our weakness and to our need. Having listened to many appeals and calls, there's only one for me. The cross has its own appeal. For this cross speaks to each of us directly. For some, the call of the cross is your life, for it has been withheld from the Lamb thus far. For others, baptized Christians who came to know the doctrines intellectually, the cross is that great missing center, the power of God unto salvation. For yet others, it's the call to let go of that one thing keeping you from clinging with both hands onto the base of the cross. And for others, it may be just that deepening baptism of what the cross of Christ means. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and only you know for what. 
He that hath ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Follow this lamb with your eye, with your mind, and then with your heart. How then will you follow the lamb? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.